This passage comes after we've been looking at various instructions to different classes of people in the church. To older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slave, free. Um, all these directives for how to live the Christian life. And as Paul's been giving us, he's not forgetting to bring us now to the foundation of it all. The foundation upon which this life of godliness and good works is built. So let's look at this gospel foundation tonight in Titus 2, 11 to 15. This is God's holy word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's holy word. There's a, a philosophical question that has occupied philosophers throughout the ages. And it's simply this. What is the good life? What is the path we ought to walk that is the path of the good life? The life of flourishing, or what we might say is the life of the blessed man. What is this sort of good life that we would be seeking after? And as people wrangle about this question, what orients it and really establishes how we answer it is our conception of history, our conception of the past, and our conception of the future. And a proper understanding of the, both the past and the future is necessary for orienting us in the present. And we see how different conceptions of past and future give different life of approaches even in our culture. We might look first at the approach of what we might call humanism as a worldview. And a humanistic worldview looks back primarily to the Enlightenment. An age of human history where they would say we broke free from the shackles of religion, the shackles of myth and deities, and we gained the tools of reason and science to chart a way forward. And they look to a future of a sort of human utopia. And they say if we use these tools of reason and science, technological progress, we can march our way to a state of flourishing. And so the present for a humanist is marked by progress. You might have think of the term progressives. And the ultimate meaning in life is found in progressing to a particular destination, really by any means necessary. That's the view of a humanist. We can also think of the view of what we might call a nihilist. And a nihilist is similar, except they take a zoomed out view. So instead of looking to these points in history, they zoom out and they look to the start. And they say... There was nothing, and then it all started with a big bang, and then it's all going to end with a slow fizzle in heat death. And so, if our past and future is nothing going to nothing, then what matters now is nothing. And so the present for the nihilist is marked by pleasure and escape. There's no transcendent meaning to be found, so let's seek our own pleasure now, seek to escape the pain of life, and whatever keeps you living is what you should pursue. 
the Christian view of the world is different because we have a different history and a different future. One that we posit is actually based on the true reality of both past and future. So the Christian present is marked by the reality of grace in the past. The grace that came at the coming of Christ. And then it's marked in the future by the glory to be revealed by the second coming of Christ. Grace and glory are orienting markers in the Christian life that help us define and motivate a godly life in the present. A life of goodness. The truly good life. And this message is countercultural. No one else likes the way we seek to live. And so when we bring this message, we're back in the place that Titus was bringing this message in his day. He was bringing a message of this Christian way of life that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks. Directions for how to live self-controlled uh, for men, for women, old and young. But the worldview of the false teachers in the church, their, back, their history post was the Mosaic Law. They looked back to the law to give them their marching orders for the present. And they didn't really look to the future. They looked to the culture around them. You see, what they wanted was they wanted religion without righteousness. That they could have all their ceremony, feel spiritual, but then live how they want. And so just imagine how unpopular it is when Titus would come and be like, actually, all those trappings of the law, those are done away with in Christ. There's a new simple way to worship. It's in spirit and truth. And you think you can just live like this culture around you. Uh Uh-uh. There is a different way to live. You need to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine, with sober-minded self-control, with a godly mindset in all things. And so you can imagine their opposition. They'd be thinking, you want to take away all our religious practices? You want us to live a harder way of life? It'd be easier to go with the flow. What gives you the right to tell us how to live? Why should we listen to you? And so as Paul is explaining to Titus this way he ought to teach the church to live, he's anticipating this objection. And so he is arming Titus in our passage tonight with the ammo of how to fight against these people that say, why would you live this way? And the ammo is that We have access to the true history of the human race, to ultimate reality, a reality defined by grace and glory. And it's on the basis of ultimate reality that we chart the path of the good life now. So we look to grace past and glory to come as controlling paradigms in the Christian life. Grace to remind us what we've been saved from, Glory to remind us what we've been saved for. Because the truth is that it's grace that frees us to live the good life. Awaiting the present, um, awaiting a future glory. So we're looking tonight at grace and glory and our life in between them. Uh, The good life. A good life. So look up with me at verse 11. We're told, in light of all these principles, why should we follow all these commands? Why should slaves be submissive to their masters? Why should we live this life, Paul, that Titus is commanding us to live? Here's why. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Wow. The grace of God has appeared. 
How did God's grace appear but in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He himself is the appearing of grace upon grace. He's a divine revelation and manifestation in history that reveals and is an exercise of God's goodness and grace towards us. And what comes when grace is revealed in Christ? Nothing but the salvation of mankind. He brings salvation for all people. Not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. All those categories we just heard about. Salvation doesn't come to one class or group of people, one race or ethnicity or religion. Grace comes to all. Men, women, old, young, slave, free. None is exempt from access to the grace of God. And Jesus comes proclaiming grace. And the grace of salvation. This grace um, orients us to the good life in this way. Uh, The salvation we're talking about is salvation from sin. And sin is the number one greatest barrier to living the good life. Sin is really defined as a deviation from the path of goodness. First John tells us that sin is lawlessness. That is, it's a departure from the rule and standard of God's will for us as his creatures. And as our creator, God knows how we function best. He designed us. He made everything good. And he made for us to live a life delighting in goodness. And sin is a departure from the path of goodness. And therefore, sin always bears bad fruit. Sin, as Romans 6.23 says, um, has the wages of death. Sin is antithetical to the good life because sin always produces death. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. The wages of sin is death, and sin is a departure from the way the Creator designed us to live. Uh, We might think of it this way, that sin is like putting gasoline into a diesel truck which I highly don't recommend. A a friend of mine, I won't say her name, did this one time, you know, had her dad's new truck. She was a new driver, mind you. And she filled up the diesel truck with gasoline, thinking that it would uh, work just fine. But that truck was not designed for gasoline. Therefore, it would think it would start going, and then what's it going to produce? Death. And that's what sin does in us. Sin is like an input and expression in our lives that goes against every way that our creator designed us to flourish. And therefore, like gasoline in a diesel engine, it corrupts it and it kills it. That's what sin does for us. And therefore, the grace of Christ is found as the greatest exercise of God's goodness in freeing us from slavery to sin. We were trapped in sin, bound in sin, enslaved to sin like Israel back in Egypt. And you can't even start on the path to the good life like Israel couldn't even start on the path to the promised land until they were delivered. But thank God that we have a deliverer. This is how we find salvation from sin. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we're told that Jesus Christ gave himself for us To redeem us from all lawlessness. That lawlessness, that sin, Christ gave himself in our place to redeem and rescue us out of slavery to sin. Right here we have the idea of substitution. Christ substituted himself for us. 
and he paid the ransom for our sin to rescue us from it and redeem us to a new way of life. That is, he's our Passover lamb. For us, once enslaved in the sin like Israel and Egypt, Christ takes the penalty of the judgment of the Lord to enable us to have liberty. And that's actually what we celebrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is connected to the Passover, the greatest act of redemption for the people of God in the history of Israel. That is, it's a deliverance from slavery to sin through the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this means for us is that we're freed now to live the good life. We're freed from slavery to sinful passions in our flesh. We're we're freed from pursuing and running after vain idols that just turn to dust in the wind. We're freed from subjection in the kingdom of darkness. That is the act of the grace of God. And so here's how grace then rightly orients us to life in the present. This reflection and memory of the grace of God in the past, it reminds us. It reminds us that sin is slavery. And so to run back to sin is to run back into voluntary subjection to things that only produce death. We're reminded in Galatians 5.1 where Paul says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Sin is like voluntary enslavement, and our deliverance from it in grace reminds us that we were enslaved, and we never want to go back there. And so we don't want to be like Israel, if you remember, they were always pining for Egypt. They're like, oh, in Egypt, the leeks and the garlic was so delicious. I just would love to go back to Egypt. And you think, that's crazy. You were slaves in Egypt. And that's what sin's like. And grace reminds us, like, no, we've been freed from the leeks and garlic for the milk and honey of the promised land. I don't know about you, but I want the milk and the honey. And so grace reminds us that this good life is never to be found in the pleasures and pursuits of this world. Because salvation has come freeing us from bondage to sin. And it's actually the first step to even get us on the path of the good life. is to find salvation through faith in Christ our substitutionary sacrifice. But we haven't just as believers in Jesus been saved from something. We've been saved to something. And that something is good works. As we're taught to be trained in goodness. Look again at verse 14. And really, here's an answer. If you would ask the question, why did Jesus save me? Why did he do that work? Here's an answer to it. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, so that's the redemption piece, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus didn't just redeem you, but he also sent the Spirit to renew you, to regenerate you, to reconcile to the fa- you to the Father that you might belong to him, to be a part of his kingdom, his holy people that are set apart from the world to live a life of good works, to be zealous for good works. And so the zeal that we really ought to feel is the zeal of good works. That's what we're called to as God's people, the zeal of good works. And this phrase good works is actually really interesting. And when it's talking about works here, it's talking about um, your business, or you might even think your way of life. And this word for good here is, is really the word more for beautiful. 
That is, we're to be zealous to live, um, to have a good business of life or a beautiful way of life. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the beautiful Christian life. One that presents and adorns the gospel, presents Christ to the world. And we're to be zealous for this life of goodness. A life that is good. The path of the good life. Because the grace of Christ comes not just to save the lost, but to train the saved. And so we see, look again at verse 11 going into verse 12, that this grace that brings salvation is, verse 12, training us. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace doesn't just save, grace also trains. Grace teaches us. This word is literally, it disciplines us. Like a parent to a child, Christ in his grace disciples us to be his disciples, his students, his learners, the ones who reflect his way of life. And so what does this look like? It looks like two things in our text. It says to deny and to live. And really, uh, if we actually took the verb renders more literally, it would be more to say that denying we should live. The living is the emphasis. It's almost as if you're walking down a path, and the whole time you're walking forward, you're kind of denying everything that's behind you. It's, you don't have to actively be like looking around behind you saying, I deny that. But when you're focused on moving forward, you're automatically saying, the world behind me, the cross before me. And it's like we're told in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that we're to run this race with perseverance, casting aside the sin that entangles us, that is denying it, saying no to it, and saying yes to Christ with eyes fixed on him. The two things we're told to deny to, as we li- seek to live this good life is ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is simply living your life without reference to God. This is the heart of atheism, a denial of God. But we as Christians can fall into a practical atheism that we go our whole day without giving thought to God. And we're supposed to cast aside and deny this sort of godless mindset that we so quickly fall into. Forgetting that God is relevant every day of our lives. But also to cast aside worldly passions. We looked at this last week in looking at self-control that we must cast behind us what the world does in living for the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that must be cast behind us if we are to deny these things for the good life. And so if we're denying these things, uh, we might ask with Francis Schaeffer, how then should we live? Okay, how are we commanded to live? What is the track of the good life? What, What should I attach myself to? What road should I go down in order to live this life of good works now? This life that's reflective of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three things we're told. That grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. Self-controlled, upright, and godly. And commentators have pointed out, and writers throughout the centuries, that these three terms function holistically to refer to the Christian in his three primary relationships. Self-control refers to your relationship to yourself especially your relationship to your sin. Uprightness, or it could be translated righteousness or justice, refers to your relationship with others. 
And the calling there is to treat everyone the way they deserve to be treated. To follow the golden rule, to treat others the way you would have them treat you. That is to do what is right, man to man. To live justly. Our relationship with others. But lastly, godliness refers to our relationship to God. That habit and attitude of piety, where the exact opposite of godliness, where it's we have God in all our thoughts. We walk in the fear of God all day long. Um, God inhabits our decision-making, our attitudes, our actions. A God-entranced vision of all things. And these three relationships, to self, to others, and to God, function, in a sense, as the three-dimensional space that the Christian lives his life. You know, we, we live life in three dimensions. We get that. Um, and I was thinking of, if you've flown a drone, you know, those little drone things now, they're actually getting pretty cheap. My brother-in-law got one for Christmas, and so we had fun kind of flying it around the living room. Just this little guy. But you have to be aware of all three dimensions when you're flying a drone. I'd imagine the same thing if you're flying a real plane as well. Um, but you have to be aware of, you know, your, your height, because if you press on the button, it goes too high, you hit the roof, and it falls. If you go too far to the side, you also crash into the wall. If you go too far forward, another wall to crash into. But if you get harmony in those three spatial dimensions and can navigate wisely with the remote, your height, your width, and your depth, you can fly that drone around the room, and it's a whole lot of fun. Zoom around the lamp in the corner, duck under the coffee table, and back up. And that's similar to say that if we are to live the Christian life with a proper ordering of our three primary relationships to self, to others, and to God, that these three orientations function to guide us on the path of the good life in a way of flourishing. And so instead of pursuing, like the humanists, progress above all things, instead of pursuing, like the nihilists, pleasure and escape above all things, Christians pursue relationship. God designed us for right relationships. And Jesus saved us that we might have rightly ordered relationships. A rightly ordered relationship to ourself and our sinful affections. A rightly ordered relationship to other people, one of love. And a rightly ordered relationship to God as his loving worshipers. And so this is useful to us as just a simple tool to check our lives by. How is my relationship with myself? How is my relationship with others? And how is my relationship with God? And I just want to offer you some questions to think about on this regard, to even maybe take in your mind from this place. And so first, let's think of our relationship to ourselves. Um, how is your relationship with your sin? Are you re repenting of it every day? Are you seeking to practice self-control? Or is there, right now in your life, any sinful vice that's kind of bringing you under its dominion from which you need to be freed? A sin which, which you need to put to death. Your relationship to yourself. But let's also reflect on our relationship with others. Are your relationships marked by righteousness? Are you treating others the way they deserve to be treated? Do you have any relationships right now that are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation? Do you treat your family members, your co-workers, and your friends with the love and dignity and honor they deserve as fellow image bearers of God? How is your relationship with your fellow man? Is it marked by doing right to them? And thirdly, your relationship with God, your most important relationship. Do you think of God? 
Does God come into your thoughts at all during the day? Do you look to him in his word and call on him in prayer? Does God factor into your daily decision making? Is he a part of your family life? And this is a call for us to take stock of our lives and to just reflect. Am I living this path of goodness and right relationships that God has called me to? Or have I deviated? Am I living in a way filling my life with things that are only going to cause the engine of my heart to break down? This is uh, what Jesus has freed us for. His grace not only saved us from slavery to sin, but it trains us to live life in God's three dimensions. To live life in a proper relationship to self, to others, and to God. And so in this way, grace again properly orients us to life in the present. Life in reconciliation to God, in love to one another, repenting of our sin. Grace orients the Christian life. But we don't just only have grace past. And this is something we often forget. We also have glory future. So the second um, orienting marker of the Christian life is glory. And grace and glory function together like the wings of a plane that when you are holding on to grace and you're holding on to glory, then you can really soar. Then you can really soar and flourish in this present age, as our text said. And so look at verse 13. We live this life denying sin, living to righteousness, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just save us to live a good life. He saved us for eternal life. And so this Christian life is a life lived waiting. Waiting for what? For a second appearance. The reappearance of Jesus Christ. He came once, we saw, in grace, and he comes again in glory. Uh, This first coming of Christ, as we heard this morning, was a coming in humility. Christ came clothed in meekness, taking the form of a servant. But not so his second appearing. His second appearing is an appearing in glory, in the glory of his Father with his mighty angels, bringing the glory of his kingdom to his redeemed people. This is the glory that we've been saved for. And so we then have what this passage says is a blessed hope. A happy expectation of future good. And that good is Jesus. But not just the appearing of Jesus, but the appearing of the glory of Jesus. Glory is what we await in heaven. And if if you know your hymns, you know what the greatest glory of heaven is you know that it's the Lamb that's all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Jesus Christ is all the glory of heaven. But then, if Jesus is the glory of heaven, do you know what is the joy for the believer in heaven? Boys and girls, if you ever wonder, what's going to make heaven so good? Why should I be excited about heaven? There's two things primarily that bring us eternal joy in heaven, based on the glory of heaven, Jesus. And it is to be with Jesus... And to be made like Jesus. Christ withness and Christ likeness. That is the joy of heaven. That is the glory that is awaiting us. And that's our happy hope. To be with Christ forever. In perfect communion with him. Perfect fellowship with him. An unbroken connection where we see him by sight. And no longer need to look to him by faith. 
to be with Christ, but also to be made like Christ, perfectly holy, no more sin, no more shame, no more self-love capturing us, but able to love others, able to enjoy this redeemed life by being made like our Savior and Redeemer. These are the great joys of heaven. But the beauty of this glorious future is that it doesn't have to just remain future. We get to enjoy a foretaste of this heavenly blessedness now. Why? Because when we've been saved from sin and united to Christ, we get the joy of having union with Christ, the ability to fellowship with Christ and enjoy him, to enjoy his presence in worship, to walk with him throughout the day. Yes, it's varying in ups and downs, but we can taste it now by faith. And we also get the opportunity through the Spirit's work of sanctification in our hearts to be made more and more like Jesus throughout our lives. And joy in life comes as we pursue walking with Jesus and being like Jesus. And in a sense, this is our foretaste of glory divine. And the taste of these things now um, we, cause us to keep in view the fullness that will be the glory. It's kind of like um, if you are in the living room and the smell of dinner starts wafting in, Boys and girls, you ever have the smell of a favorite dinner that comes wafting in? And you think, ah, this is so delicious. But no one is content just to um, to, to sit with only the smells of the food. No, it's, it's only something to whet your appetite for the full participation in the fullness of the feast. And we know that this is a qualitative difference here. And this is what our communion and likeness to Christ is now. It's like just that prefiguring, that that aroma of heaven that calls us upward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will feast in eternal joys more than we can know and understand. We get to live the good life, tasting the glories of heaven as we seek to become like Christ, to live self-controlled, to live uprightly, to live godly lives like the Savior that went before us. As we pursue that, we grow in likeness to Christ, and we grow in walking the path of the good life, and Christ walks with us. This is the path that Christ calls us to. It's the path he's saved us to walk, the path of goodness, in rightly ordered relationships. And this is better than any good life idea the world offers. It's better than just pursuing human progress. It's better than just pursuing your own pleasure or escape. This is a life that is deeply meaningful, deeply satisfying, and filled with joy, even in the struggle. Jesus reminds us of what we've been saved from as we look to the marker of grace, but we're reminded what we've been saved for as we look to glory to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was high, he made himself low. He came down being made like us, that we might be made like him. He came down to dwell with us, that we might walk with him now and dwell with him forever. Lord, would you allow these to be our daily experience of the presence of Christ, more and more of the likeness of Christ. We pray for these things. Lord, we ask for the ability to deny our sinful passions, to deny godless living, that you would empower your people by your Holy Spirit to live lives of self-control, to live lives where they work righteousness and do justice to others. 
and where they have minds filled with your glory and your grace, where you factor, Lord, into all our decision-making. Lord, help us to remember your grace, to rest on your grace, to rely on the grace you've offered us in Christ, knowing that in him we are precious and beloved in your sight. And remind us often, Lord, of the glory to come, the glory of Emmanuel's land, that glorious joy and hope that awaits us to see our Savior as he is and to be made like him. Would you fill us with eager expectation, we pray for his sake. Amen.